So most of you know Mike. If you don't know Mike, <laughs> he says you're one of the lucky ones. No, it's not true. Come on. No, he's a blessing. He's a, he's a voice that speaks into us with wisdom. And he, uh, we've known each other for many years, and he's a gift to us. So I'll just call you the gift. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. It's wonderful to be here. Yay! It feels like it's been a long time since I've been here, but uh, it always feels a little bit like home. I love it here. I love you guys. Oh. <laughs> and I, I just want to share a word of encouragement this evening. You know, it's so wonderful to uh, read uh, on social media and listen in meetings about what God has been doing, the number of salvations and healings and miracles. It's absolutely incredible. And I, I think sometimes, to be honest, we don't see... Oh, thank you. Bubbly. Give me some bubbles. I like the bubbles. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. Like we hear some of the stories, even the, some of the stories that were told tonight, it's like, yay. And then we go, yay. It's like, do we understand how profound these stories are? Do we understand what it means when somebody goes from death to life? When somebody's eternity is transformed? Heaven, uh, scripture tells us heaven celebrates. The angels are, are doing cartwheels every time somebody gets saved. And we're like, yeah, nice. And sometimes I think we've lost sight of the glory of our journey of salvation. Even our own journey, let alone celebrating other people, like, when was the last time you were absolutely overwhelmed at the fact that you're still breathing? Yeah? When was the last time you were overwhelmed at, at, at the fact that Jesus would allow you into his presence? I was, I was doing some recordings this week on, on finances and one of the, the videos I was doing, you know, answering the question, why must I tithe? I said, you know, that's really a wrong question. Why must I tithe? Have we lost sight of the privilege it is to co-partner with the Lord to extend His kingdom? It's not why must I tithe, it's what a privilege is it that I get to tithe? How awesome is it that God's provided something to me that I'm able to give something back to him, even if it's a small percentage, and we lose something of the awe and the wonder. I loved Ian's story. You know, I've known him as a father, known him as a friend. I just wanted to know the fear of God. And in that moment, overwhelmed by the bigness and the glory and the fear of God, and, and there's this rubbish teaching going around that, you know, we don't have to fear God anymore because perfect love casts out all fear and, and using scriptures out of context. The fear of God is not something we should run away from. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. 
because it's in that place that we also understand His love and His mercy and His grace. And we can only really celebrate His mercy and His grace if we truly understand His power and His holiness. Paul writes, consider the sternness and the kindness of God, because you can't understand His kindness unless you understand His judgment. There was uh, somebody on the internet, old um, on Facebook, there was a Facebook conversation that I happened to look at, and it's somebody who's got some quite weird theology, and he asked this question about this, the hymn Amazing Grace. He says, in the hymn Amazing Grace, it says, saved a wretch like me. Does that apply? Is that, is that bad theology? And people are saying, yes, we're not wretches. We are loved by God. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Unless you understand you were a wretch. And one person posted and said, you know, I used to be an atheist, but I lived a good life. And it used to irritate me in churches how in testimonies people thought they were more spiritual if they'd had like a, a, a salvation from a really bad way of life. He said, I wasn't a wretch, I was a good person. I thought, you have not understood the gospel. I don't know if you're even saved. If you say, I was a good person before I met Jesus, good by whose standards? Unless we understand how wretched we were, how hopeless we were, how devoid of any purpose we were, then what, how can we celebrate salvation? Sorry, I'm... Getting a bit off topic. I get worked up about things. You know, I think we should get worked up about stuff occasionally. I see people doing apologetics courses, and it's all about how well you can argue. It's like nobody's ever been argued into the kingdom, especially on social media. One thing you've never read on social media after you've posted something, oh yes, I see your point. I realize now I was absolutely wrong and I will change my mind. <laughs> but when people are confronted by passion, I love the blind man that Jesus healed and the Sanhedrin call him in and say, uh, who was this guy and what did he do? And they ask him all these questions because they're trying to trap Jesus and convict him. And, and this guy, he's, he's just an ordinary guy. He's been blind his whole life. He's not educated. And at one point, I think in frustration, he says, I don't know any of this. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. You can't argue with that. And the world needs to see a passionate people. A people who haven't lost a sense of wonder in who God is and what he's doing in us. Not just what he's done, but what he's doing. And we need to be passionate because we've got a purpose. Each and every one has a purpose to fulfill. And I believe there's something innate within every man, woman, and child on this planet which is a longing, a longing to be useful. A longing for a purpose. We don't like to think that we're all going to die, but we are. 
Nobody gets out of here alive. Life is short. I've realized that I was talking to somebody the other day. And I thought we were kind of fairly close in age. And then when they told me they were born, when they were born, I was like, I'd left school by then. <laughs> My teenage years were spent in the 80s. The decade that style forgot. <laughs> Big hair. That was just the guys. <laughs> we don't have that long. Our years are short. Even scripture says men are like grass. But deep within us is, is, is this need to be significant. Is that true? How many of you here are happy to be insignificant and make no difference whatsoever to the world? And people look for significance in many ways. Some people, I, I, I know one guy and his whole purpose in life was to earn and, and save a certain amount of money in order that he could serve, um, so that he could bequeath a certain amount of money to each of his children and he felt that would make him significant. If in his will he could leave each of his kids X million rand. I suppose that's a purpose. I suppose that's significant to your two or three children. The Greeks had this concept of being famous and as long as people spoke your name, that was the concept of immortality. And the worst thing in, in Greek thinking was that your name would be forgotten. And so they wanted to do something so significant that their name would be remembered. Good luck to you. If that's what you want, if you want your name to be remembered in a thousand years. But deep down inside of us, I think there's a longing for a purpose that is bigger than me. And we have that. Because God created us for a purpose. And the purpose was to glorify Him. The purpose of mankind was to reflect the glory of God to the universe. It's hard to believe this looking around at the moment, but man is the pinnacle of creation. You are. It is man and woman that reflect God. It is us that were made in His likeness. And of course, sin distorted that. But our job is to reflect something of the nature and glory of God. And think about this. This is how significant you are and insignificant at the same time. The universe is quite big. Yeah, it's quite big. I could give you some statistics, but the statistics around the universe are so big that our, our brains don't even comprehend them. But even our galaxy is bigger than we can imagine. Light years and light years in distance. And if you imagine millions of galaxies, and, and people have argued recently, there's a lot in the news at the moment about UFOs and aliens, and one of the things people say is, there must be life on other planets because the universe is too big for it to be all about us. And I would agree, yes, the universe is too big for it to be all about us. 
because it's not all about us, it's all about him. And if the purpose of the universe is to reveal the nature of God, like Romans says, that all of creation displays something of the nature of God, then perhaps, almost, maybe, it's nearly big enough to do that. And yet, despite the glory and the beauty of the universe and how vast it is, and it speaks of something of the nature of God, it doesn't speak of the nature of God as much as you do. Does that blow your mind just for a second? That when you are filled with the Spirit of God and you represent Him, you display His glory in a way that the whole universe cannot. That seems to me like we have a significant purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God and to bring other people into the knowledge of God and change people's eternity forever. Somebody asked me recently about my goals and ambitions and whatever. I said, I don't really have ambitions. I just want to do what Jesus asked me to do today. Like, I, struggle to, I struggle to figure out a week ahead. Maybe that's just me. I'm, I'm a bit thick. I said, but I'll tell you what I'm passionate about. I'll tell you what gives me a buzz. I'll tell you what just gets me excited like nothing else. It's when I'm teaching or preaching and I see the lights come on in somebody. I was in Brazil and uh, I'd finished preaching and this guy came to me and he just gave me a hug and I had no idea who he was. And he spoke to me like I was an old friend. I'm like, who is this guy? I'm pretty bad with names and faces, but I really don't know who this guy is. And he was speaking Portuguese, so I didn't even understand what he was saying, so I grabbed a translator. And basically what he was saying is, I just want you to know that I fell away, but I've come back to the Lord because I got saved when you preached here 10 years ago. I was like, wow. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. And there's nothing for me. Other people, it's, it's worship or it's, it's, it's you know, shepherding or prophesying. You know, Sharon, I'm pretty sure what excites her most is when she prophesies and somebody's mouth's wide open going, how did you know that? There's not much better, right? And for me, it's when I'm preaching and the lights come on and somebody, somebody meets Christ for the first time or somebody has a, a greater um, revelation of who he is, of his beauty or his glory or his majesty or people change direction in life or people resolve to serve him in a deeper way. That for me is the most exciting thing. Because I'm changing lives, not just for this life but forever. And when Jonathan Cunrath comes and we rally around this whole concept of evangelism, I love the fact that this place was packed. I got back from Brazil and tried to buy a ticket. I couldn't get one because it was sold out. And I was disappointed and excited at the same time. We had people scrounging, please, are there any spare tickets? I want to bring some unsaved friends, and I'm saying, just tell some believers that they're not allowed to come. Just cancel some believers' tickets so we can get more of them. And it was so exciting, and I want to say, well done, guys. It was awesome to, to see this room packed, 
and see so many people respond to the gospel. And do you know that you have played a role in changing people's lives for eternity? I thought, I thought it was significant. I thought it was exciting. I thought, I thought that's good news. Yay! This is what I'm talking about. We have a theology, but are, are our hearts overflowing? It's got to descend from here into here. It's got to be a passion and an excitement. And otherwise, what happens is we, we talk about evangelism and you feel the leaders are driving you. Oh, we better do this. The elders have told us we've got to. They've, got to, they've told us it's an important meeting. We've got to be at it. And you feel like you're being driven. But Jesus walks in front and calls us. And we hear his voice and recognize it and recognize that's where good things are. That's where our love is. That's where our heart is. And one of the things that I, I, I get very disappointed about, I had a young lady speak to me a while back and she said, she was fairly newly saved. And she said, can I speak to you? Because my friends and, and, and some of, you know, my family and some of my friends have told me that I'm a little bit over the top and I need to calm down. I said, please don't. Please don't. The fact that everybody else has cooled down, don't, let, don't become lukewarm. And I want to encourage us all, especially leaders. There's, there's a line we've often used. There's a difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Do you know what the difference is? A thermometer is used to tell you what the temperature of something is. So if you're a thermometer, you can come into a meeting and go, oh, this meeting sucks. It's really cold in here, right? A thermometer simply tells you the temperature. A thermometer changes the temp a th thermostat changes the temperature. And we can be thermostats. We can come into places, not just in church, but in our workplaces, in our families, and we can change the temperature. We can enter into a room of broken, depressed, hopeless people and bring joy and hope and salvation. Except many of us I've lost that passion. And we're on a journey. And I want to talk about the journey a little bit tonight. You know, the early disciples before they were called Christians, Christians started as a nickname, it was a derogatory term. And before Christians were called Christians, they, they were disciples of Jesus or followers of the way. And Jesus, of course, is the way. You know, he said to his disciples, I am the way. And they said, no way. And he said, Yahweh. <laughs> Just for you, Nikki. Just for you. 
the old ones are the best. But we're on a journey. And, and I want to just, I just want to expound on this journey a little bit because sometimes in our Christianese, we, we use words and phrases and I think we use them without understanding sometimes or, or without thinking them through. We, we, we love our Christianese, don't we? And one of the things I hear is we're going into the more. Who said that? We're leading them into the more. I think it's only in church where you talk about the more. Yeah? Where else do you talk about the more? Elsewhere it's just, we need more. No, we're going into the more. And I'm not knocking it if you say that, but then sometimes I'll just stop and say, what do you mean? More of what? What do you mean by it? The more. Uh, uh. So I'm not against the statement, but have you given some thought to what the more is? Because God has more for you. Ephesians says he's got more for us than we can ask for or imagine. But in what, in what context? I drive a nice Peugeot. Does it mean I'll get upgraded to a Ferrari? I don't think that's the more that it's talking about. So what is more? Because if I don't know what the more is that Jesus wants for me, I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know where to take other people. Because here's something we've got to realize about Jonathan Conrath. John, we didn't invite Jonathan Conrath here to get people saved. That might be a controversial statement. That was not the primary reason why we invited Jonathan Conrath. Yes, we knew he would do encounters and people would get saved, but that was not the primary reason we asked him. The primary reason we asked Jonathan Cumrath to come is because we recognize him as a five-fold evangelist. In, in other words, what the evangelist is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. And the purpose of an evangelist, according to Ephesians 4, is what? To equip you guys for the work of ministry. The idea is, even those encounters, whilst we did get people saved, it was to raise faith, to raise awareness, to raise passion, and to equip you to say, hey, I can lead people to Jesus. If I were to ask you, how many of you are desperate to lead somebody to Jesus? I think most of you put your hands up. So I'm not going to ask you. Because what if I said, who's desperate to, to lead somebody to Jesus and there was a monitor on top of your head that showed what you really think? How many of us are actually desperate to lead people to Jesus? Thank you. But I think many of us aren't. Many of us know we should be. I'm speaking to myself, I'm an elder. And sometimes I find myself like, hey, you know what? I don't know many unsaved people. Most of my friends are saved. Most of my work colleagues are saved. <laughs> hey, I work with Sheldon, I'm not sure about one or two. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's like my life's quite comfortable my family's saved I, 
And sometimes I can lose sight of the reason I'm here. I can lose God's heart for the world. So I want to talk to us about our journey to remind us of our journey, where we've come from, where we are, where we're going. So that when we get excited about the journey and we meet people, one of the best things we can do is say, come with us. Come with us. Come with us, we'll do you good. Where are you off to? I'm not quite sure, but it's going to be amazing. And I want us to look at the book of Exodus because there's some principles about this journey I want to expound upon. And we know the story, so I'm not going to read it all, but we know the story that Moses was saved as a young boy, miraculously, by the hand of God. He was put into a basket. And the Hebrew word for basket there is ark, the same as ark of the covenant. And basically, that what, what there is in uh, so, and, uh, Noah's ark, and when you look at Noah's ark, and the basket, Moses' ark, they're both means of salvation. And the word ark and the whole concept is that these were things that were covered, right? The, the ark was covered in tar. And that word for covering is atonement. It's speaking of Jesus saved us. Jesus saved us from death. He covered over our sins. He saved us from drowning. And then Moses grew up with riches and wealth. But he knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew he'd been adopted into Pharaoh's family. And he would look and he would see his, his Hebrew brothers and sisters in slavery and being mistreated. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he considered the, the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. So even Moses, thousands of years before Christ came he looked forward and he could say, I have a responsibility to my Redeemer. And I've got a responsibility to these people I see in slavery. And the people that we work with, our families and our friends, are in a worse condition of slavery than the Israelites were. Because the Egyptians could only hold you in slavery till you died. But Satan has people in bondage today and wants to keep them in bondage for eternity. And it was for freedom, Nikki mentioned this, I think, earlier on, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. He set us free from bondage. And so... Moses looks at his friends, he looks at his family, he looks at his Hebrew brothers and sisters in slavery and something rises up with him, a deep desire to release them from the bondage of slavery. The problem is the first time he tries this, he tries it in his own effort and his own strength. And here's the challenge for us, that when I talk about evangelism, a lot of us kind of go inside. Because we feel like we're not capable. I don't know the gospel well enough. I don't know how to speak to people. 
I don't understand this prayer. I don't understand. How many of you get intimidated at the thought of evangelizing? Come on, be honest. Right. I've got hope. I've got good news for you. I used to be the world's worst evangelist. I would spend half an hour with an unbeliever, and instead of them getting saved, I would start to doubt my own salvation. But here's the thing, it's not your effort, it's not your skill, it's not your knowledge. And just like Moses, if you simply try to do it through your own effort and your own skill and your own knowledge, you're going to come unstuck. And Moses tried that. He saw one of the Hebrews being abused, so he went up to the Egyptian and he punched him one time and killed him. Quite a... Quite a strong dude, Moses, by all accounts. But then, because he's not doing it God's way, because he's not in God's will, because he's not following God's way, he's trying it his own way, he makes a mess and suddenly he realizes, I'm in trouble. And he gets frightened and he runs away. And from thinking he was a big shot, he ends up learning that he's a nobody. He learns he's a nobody to such a degree that when God speaks to him in the desert through the burning bush and calls him, Moses five times says, I can't, because I'm a nobody. I've said this before, I'll say it again, and it's not unique to me, I stole it from somewhere. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, then 40 years learning he was a nobody, called at the age of 80 and learned that God takes nobodies and makes them somebody's. And that's the whole thing about significance. If you're sat here thinking, I'm a nobody, I am unable, I can't save anybody, I can't heal anybody, I can't... Congratulations, that's a good place to start. God, come and use a nobody. People call me nobody. Yeah, because nobody's perfect. Okay, I'm going I'm to tell you my favorite joke quick. Okay. While we're on the subject. And my daughter's cringing. Dad, you're not funny. Stop trying to be funny. <laughs> so Moses killed the Egyptian. One punch. Big, strong dude, right? Goes into the desert. And in the desert, God provides for him and gives him a wife. Can anybody tell me what uh, Moses' wife was called? Zipporah. Who said that? You win a Mars bar. So Moses marries Zipporah, but for short he called her Zippo. Because while, uh, while he was a big guy, she was a little lighter. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. Sorry, back on track. <laughs> I see Nikki. Nikki's just like, why did I invite this guy tonight? So then, so Moses is called, and Jesus speaks to him. He says, I've called you to save my people. Go and tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And he goes, and he confronts Pharaoh, 
and Pharaoh doesn't say yes. Pharaoh says no a whole bunch of times. But God performs miracles in order to manipulate, if you like, situation to lead Pharaoh where he has no option but to say, yes, I will set your people free. And I've not got time to do this study tonight, but if you do a study, there were 10 plagues. And each of those plagues was not just a random thing. God didn't, you know, have a little spinner board going, what plague shall we do now? Oh, frogs, that's a good idea. Each of the plagues was specifically designed to show his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. The Nile was a god, and it turned to blood. They had a, a goddess of fertility with the head of a frog. They said, okay, you believe frogs' fertility? There you go, let's overload you with frogs. Let's make these frogs abundantly fertile so it becomes a curse to you. The firstborn were treated with double honor. They were worshipped in a sense. And God slew the firstborn. And what God was doing was saying, you have these powers, you have these gods, you have these things that you worship. I'm going to demonstrate that I am greater than any of your gods. And one of the reasons people don't follow Jesus, perhaps the greatest reason, isn't a lack of understanding. So apologetics on its own, where you argue logic, is not going to be enough. Apologetics can simply be a way to open hearts. The reason people don't follow Jesus is because they're busy worshipping something else. And we can demonstrate, and we need to demonstrate, that God is greater than any false gods that you can worship. And our testimonies do that. This is what I used to worship. And this is what God delivered me from. And God sets his people free out of slavery. And then they start a journey. And it's a 40-odd year journey for them. You know what they say? They wandered in the desert for 40 years because Moses wouldn't stop and ask for directions. And we, let's pick the story up at Exodus chapter 13. Because this whole story is the salvation story. In Exodus 13, from verse 21, the Lord guided them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. That way they could travel whether it was day or night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire from their sight. And, now, and verse 22, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so as they start this journey, and notice please, they start this journey together. They're all released from slavery at the same time. And if they lived today, this is probably what would happen. Oh, well, yeah, okay, you go that way. I'm just feeling led to go this way. You know, I, I, I've... I've got God. I don't need you guys. But they didn't wander off 
on their own. In fact, during their time in the desert, do you know what the greatest form of discipline was? The greatest form of discipline, if somebody was sinning, was to be put outside of the camp, to be outside of the blessing and protection of being part of the community of faith. And survival from wild animals and from enemy kings and and from others who would have them brought back into slavery, the greatest protection they could have would be to be part of the community of faith. And so this journey that we travel, we do not travel it alone. And they traveled together and before them was this pillar which represents the Holy Spirit. And day or night, they could see the Holy Spirit. Day or night, they could follow the Holy Spirit. And every man, woman, or child in Israel, every man, woman, and child who was part of the community of faith was capable of seeing and following the Holy Spirit. That is true today. Why have we got leaders? We'll get into that. We've got leaders for a reason. But you are capable of hearing the voice of God. You are capable of keeping in step with the Spirit, like Paul urges us multiple times. Keep in step with the Spirit. So where are we going? What is the more? I can't always tell you what the more looks like for you. I can tell you if you keep in the step with the Spirit, you'll find it. If you keep in step with the Spirit, you'll end up where He wants you to be. I'm not quite sure, you know, I've been been serving the Lord for 50 years now. No, 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 you're supposed to say, impossible, Mike, you're not that old. That's what you're supposed to say. (laughs) No, it's impossible. Thank you. I've lost my point now. No. I've learned I'm not, I'm not always sure that I want to hear what God's got for me 10 years from now. Because I'm not ready for it. When I was 12 or 13, somebody prophesied over me I would be an elder. You know what that did for me? You've got to be kidding. You've got to be an idiot to want to be an elder. I'm not quite sure I've changed my opinion on that. I still think you have to be a little bit of an idiot. <laughs> because I wasn't ready for it then. And I'm not saying prophecy, prophecy is a good thing. But some of us are like, God, tell me, tell me, tell me. And he's not telling you. You get frustrated. Thank God he's not telling you yet. And I've got a little bit of a theory about prophecy. It's only my theory. This isn't biblical. So don't take it as Biblical. But I've got this theory that the more prophecies you get about something in the future, the harder it's going to be. Because you need all those words to confirm when you're in the middle of it. Go, God, I can't do this anymore. And then you've got a dozen prophecies to keep you going. Yeah? So when you keep saying, God, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, and he's not telling you, say, thank you, Lord. And remember, Abraham, it says, left his father's house not knowing where he was going. You don't have to know where you're going. That's a beautiful thing. 
You know, some churches are built on like a five-year vision. I'm like, maybe God has given them a five-year plan and a five-year vision. It's like, I don't know what God's going to do tonight. But I'm willing to keep in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit is observable by every member of the community of faith. Day and night, He goes ahead of us. And he guides us and shows us the way. You go, whoo, that will make life easy, won't it? No. Because <laughs> let's read on. See, I was reading this a while back and, and I, I came to a screeching halt in the very next verse. Have you ever been reading the Bible, you've read it a hundred times and suddenly you read a verse and go, what's that about? Happens to me all the time. But then again, I'm not too bright. So straight after that verse, it then says in Exodus 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near some place I can't pronounce, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Can anybody guess why I came to a screeching halt at this point? No, because we've just read... The pillar of cloud guided them and never left them. And then God says to Moses, tell the people where to go. Why did Moses have to tell the people where to go? All they had to do was follow the cloud. But now God, needs, God realizes, actually, just having the cloud isn't enough. They need leaders as well. Now, why would I need a leader if I've got the cloud? Well, why? You've got the Holy Spirit, right? So why do you need leaders? Because you're stupid! <laughs> Sorry. That was a bit out of line. That's why I need leaders. Because I'm stupid. Because sometimes, you can imagine... There's Mr. and Mrs. Israelite. They've just been walking all day through the desert. The cloud stops. They go, thank goodness for that. We can set up camp now and grab something to eat. So Mr. Israelite puts the tent up while Mrs. Israelite cooks the supper. And their 18 kids gather around. And they're in the, just in the middle of eating supper. And as they start supper, the cloud starts moving. You've got to be kidding me. This is not a good time. Have you ever done that with God? God, this is not a good time. My circumstances right now are, yes, Lord, I'll do it tomorrow. My mother, when I was a teenager, always said uh, on my gravestone would be etched, I was going to do it. <laughs> Have you tidied your room? Well, I was going to do it. Have you done the dishes? I was going to do it. And the problem is the cloud moves, but for various reasons... We've got our eyes focused somewhere else. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. We're lazy. Whatever reason, we need somebody to come alongside us and show us where the cloud's moving. And that's why Scripture says in the New Testament, and Paul urges leaders, says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with all authority. So as elders, I understand this. I'm not trying to tell people where I want them to go. 
My responsibility is to encourage, correct, and rebuke so that you follow the cloud. You know, often, I've said this before, but often people come to me and say, Mike, what should I do? And my answer is, I have no idea. What did Jesus say? I don't know. Well, go away and pray about it. And then let's have a conversation. Because I want to train you to be able to follow the Spirit. That's part of the walking into more. That's part of the maturity. That's part of growing up and having a greater understanding, a greater obedience, a greater devotion. And that's not to abdicate authority. Because if that person comes back to me and says, yeah, Mike, I prayed about it. God told me to divorce my wife and marry my secretary. I can say, no, he didn't. Let's try again. I don't know what cloud you're following. But it's not the cloud of the Spirit. Sorry I'm being a bit naughty tonight. I don't know what's got into me. But here's the other reason why we need leaders and the cloud. Because it says, God gives his reason why they go to that place. And if you look at a map, it's not going in the right direction. It says, Pharaoh will think that Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. In other words, where I'm taking you makes no sense. I want to tell you, God will take you where it makes no sense. You know, when I, when I grew up, one of the things that, that was ingrained within me was being a wise steward of what God had given me. So being a wise steward means, you know, not being stupid with my money until God sometimes told me to do things that were really stupid with my money. And in those contexts, being a wise steward is trusting God and being obedient to him. But sometimes it makes no sense. Sometimes you'll go around in circles. And there's a few reasons why you might go around in circles. One is you're just too stupid to learn your lesson. I've had guys come to me and, you know, they've wrestled and they say, no, no, Mike, but you don't understand. I've been saved 25 years. And my response sometimes is, no, you've been saved one year and relived it 25 times. <laughs> sometimes we're just going around, in, we're going around the same mountain. We're not... Sometimes the Lord wants to take you out of your way because he's got something better in store for you. He's got a plan and a purpose for his glory. And, you know, as, as Christians, we love Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Love that bit. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Ka-ching. He leads me beside still waters. Amen. Hallelujah. He restores my soul. Hey, preach it, brother. <laughs> but then it says, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What's he doing in the valley of the shadow of death? The shepherd's leading him through it. 
Sometimes the way to the green pasture, sometimes the way to the still water, sometimes the way to restore your soul is to take you through the valley of the shadow of death. It makes no sense. How many of you have been there? And in that place is Rod and his staff comfort me. But here's why God did this for them. See, that when, when you come out of slavery, and this is a picture of salvation, right? Going from slavery into freedom. Then the Holy Spirit comes and begins to lead you. And can I just say as leaders, can we give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to lead our people before we jump in? Sometimes we are quicker than the Holy Spirit and we start trying to deal with things that the Holy Spirit isn't ready to empower people to deal with yet. I remember a young lady stood out there one night after a meeting and she'd been saved out of prostitution and drugs and just the most broken lifestyle. She's, she's overcoming a drug, drug addiction. She's having to trust God for an income. Everything that she knows, she's left. And, and just being overwhelmed with people, just being with people, even having people love her was overwhelming because she'd only ever been used and abused by people. And she's outside having a cigarette just, and somebody comes up to her and says, do you know you're sinning? She never came back. Now, if, if I catch Margot catching a sneaky cig during a lunch break at the office, <laughs> then I might have something to say. But in that case, you're you're throwing a law and a burden on somebody that they're not on that part of the journey yet. And we can break people. I've been serving, as I said, I've been serving Jesus 50 years and he's still telling me what's wrong with me. How happy am I that on that first day he didn't give me a complete list? He said, this is what I want to deal with now. And just went, hey, look how holy I am now. No, let's get to the next thing. And let's give the Holy Spirit an opportunity and work in cooperation with him instead of trying to replace him. And so the people, every saved person, every born-again person, every person who surrendered to Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit within you to lead you and guide you. And this is where it leads them. It leads them to a place of baptism. Because that's what the Red Sea crossing represents. And one of the things I want to urge us is we've seen many salvations over the last week or so. But we have a responsibility to walk with the Holy Spirit in leading people on a journey from a decision for Christ to hearing Christ to being baptized to growing and to walking ultimately into the promised land. You might say, well, what's the Red Sea crossing got to do with baptism? And it's quite simple. Because you said they didn't get wet. No, they didn't, but the, the Pharaoh's army did. What happened at that moment, they, they crossed this point where all of the forces of Egypt that were trying to drag them back 
into captivity were destroyed in the waters of baptism. And I think if we're not leading people into baptism, we've got a problem. Because Satan doesn't like losing people. And people who got saved, they are highly vulnerable. Like a newborn baby. And we have a responsibility to lead them on the way. And so Israel's army was destroyed. And God leads them. Then he leads them to a spring. A hallelujah. Then they try the spring and the spring is bitter. What's this about? Until God makes the bitter water sweet. Can you see? It's not a simple straight line. We are on a journey from glory to glory. But it's not a straight line. It's not like, come, you know, like that kind of gospel message, come to Jesus and everything in your life will suddenly be okay. Sometimes I want to say, come to Jesus and everything in your life will be a lot worse for a while. Not really, but you know what I'm saying. I'm being a bit naughty tonight. But can you see here the people of Israel are on a journey? And the journey is what ultimately to walk into the promised land. And what they were seeking was not actually a little bit of land in Palestine. We read that in, in Hebrews 11 as well. Actually, they were doing this because they were looking for a better country. The things that they could do in this world, the things that they could aim for in this world, were simply a reflection or a deposit or a down payment on the eternal destiny. So what is the more that we're aiming for? Ultimately, the more is the fullness of Christ in eternity. But the down payment we get in this life, the more we walk in in this life until we get there, is what? A deeper relationship with Jesus. A deeper reliance on the Holy Spirit. A deeper sense of obedience. A greater sense of righteousness and holiness. You know, Paul, both Paul and John write in the New Testament, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And you have nothing to fear if you pass the test. You go, well, what's the test? Here's the good news. Here's some good news for you. Because Jesus has tests for you. He wants to test you. Okay? The New Testament's full of passages about being tested. Okay? Here's the good news. He wrote the test, and he's got all the answers, and he wants to tell you what the answers are. You know, I had a friend at school, he was so dumb. <laughs> That's a bit cruel, but I'll tell you the story, you can decide whether he was dumb. We had, a, we had a big chemistry test, it was all multiple choice, and he managed to get hold of the answers from somebody who'd previously taken the test. So he... Um, he memorized all the answers, and he went into the test, and he just ticked off all the letters that he'd memorized. When the results came back, 
Number one, he failed. And two, he got in trouble for cheating. The reason was, whilst he'd remembered all the letters, he'd missed a line. <laughs> so he got all the answers wrong, but they could see from the pattern. <laughs> so that's pretty dumb. When you failed the test and you've cheated. But here's the good news for us. We're allowed to cheat because the one who sets the test has the answers and wants to give you the answers because he desires that we pass the tests. So how do we test ourselves? Well, these are the questions, because this is where we're going, right? This is the journey we're on. And the, the test isn't how mature am I right now? How spiritual do I feel right now? How many people have I saved right now? The question is, do I have a greater inclination to obey, obey Jesus than I used to have? Am I becoming a little bit more like Jesus than I used to be? Is my desire to serve him or myself? And when we ask those questions, it really doesn't matter how far down the road you are. It only really matters which direction you're traveling in. Because the good news is, this isn't a race where only one of us gets the prize. We should perhaps all run as though only one of us gets the prize. But in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher, the beginning and end, the one who gave us our faith and the one who will complete our faith, the one where we finish. So we have a responsibility before God for ourselves to run the race and go in the right direction. And going in the direction simply means following the pillar of God, following the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit and with our leaders. But beyond that, we've got another responsibility. And this is what I want to emphasize tonight, where as a church, we need to understand how many newborn babies, newborn spiritual babies there are amongst us right now. And we saw a lot of salvations, and we saw a lot of recommitments. And can I tell you, often when people are recommitting, not always, but often when people are recommitting, it's actually really a first-time salvation. And some people are like newborn babies, even if they made a commitment 20 years ago. And we have a responsibility that those that we're with, because we're a community of faith, that nobody gets left behind. So practically, what does that mean? Well, it means if I, if I truly love Paul, and the cloud's going that way, and I see Paul walking that way, What's my responsibility to my brother? To try and... Where are you going? Where are you? You're a sinner. No, not to judge him and be ugly to him. My, my responsibility. Bro, look. The cloud's there. Come. 
those who haven't started the journey. Come with us, we'll do you good. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how amazing it is to serve him. There's a responsibility that each of us has. And I just want to finish with this because I know I've been going on. I just want to encourage us in some practical ways that we can help every person finish the journey, walk into the more. Have conversations with people that help point them to a better future. Help envision people. A major reason why people give up, why people stumble, why people go astray is they lose sight of the beauty of Jesus. And one of the most powerful things we can do is have conversations with people about what Jesus is like and what Jesus sees in people. I love to sit with people and tell them what I see they can be in Christ. I love to try and look at people not as they used to be. I hate putting people in boxes and pigeonholing people. I want to see people through the lens of what they can be because it's exciting and glorious and I want to try and deposit that and work with, with people to see that and we can do that in conversations. You don't have to be a leader to over a dinner table say, what's your desire? What's your passion? What do you love doing in the church? We love people. How do we love them? A phone call. A message. A word of encouragement. Can I say, I've been convicted of this over the last year or so. I think, or it's said that encouragement is oxygen to the soul. I think as a culture and as a people, we can be very slow to encourage. And it can be quite embarrassing, not just to speak positively. Like, as an Englishman, can I say, you know the five love languages? There's a sixth love language, which is sarcasm and insults. And it can be embarrassing to say nice things to people. Because where I grew up, the better friends you were with somebody, the more you would insult them. But words of encouragement are so necessary. And not only that, I get embarrassed when people say nice things to me. It doesn't happen often, but... Joking. We need to encourage one another. Speak life over one another. That's how we can love people. Draw people in. And there's some people that are difficult to encourage. Let's be honest. Some people are difficult to love. But can we ask God to show us the one lovable thing in somebody that we can latch onto? Have people in our homes and over our dinner tables. How much do we pray for each other? 
Seriously, how much do we pray for each other? Because here's the thing. As I look around, you all look fairly normal. You all look moderately happy. You all look like normal church-going people, nice people. I have no idea what you're going through. I don't know the challenges you're facing. I don't know the attacks you're coming under. I don't know what keeps you awake at night. I don't know what's breaking your heart. But as we heard earlier, he does. God, I want to pray. I want to intercede. Who, who must I pray for? Can I challenge us this week? It's not a law, just a challenge. Can you maybe commit to saying, I, I want to incorporate praying for two people this week into my prayer life. God, show me who, my, who I must pray for. And in your prayers, maybe God will give you a word of encouragement or a prophecy or a word of knowledge. This is how we help each other finish the journey. This is how we, we build faith and build courage. When somebody stumbles, are we there to pick them up? Or do we condemn them? Do we point fingers? Do we judge? Or do we say, thank you, God, it wasn't me. Instead of saying, there, but for the grace of God. Are we even aware when people have fallen? Are we aware when people are hurting? Are we aware when people are lonely? Are we, the Holy Spirit isn't just to lead me on my own merry little way. The Holy Spirit is to lead me to help others on the merry way. Modeling how we should live. Sharing our time, our talents, and our treasures with one another. Some years ago, I was in a big financial difficulty. I'd had operations and all kinds of things had happened. Um, and I was praying for God's provision. And in the same week, I got given two blessings. One was an envelope with a couple of thousand rand in it. The other was a chocolate bar. And you know what? I figured out who'd given me the chocolate bar. And I knew that this person had nothing. They had nothing. And that chocolate bar did something in me, in terms of my faith, that God is looking after me even in the small things. And the envelope was very valuable and came in really useful. But to be honest, it didn't touch my heart like the chocolate bar did. And even in our nothing, we can give. And you don't know how that can help somebody else. Walk into more. Stay the path and keep running the race. Testimonies. I kind of feels like it's gone a little bitty now, but, so I'm going to finish there. But I just want to urge us, what... How excited are we that we're on this journey? Like when you set off for a family holiday and you're going somewhere really amazing.
how excited are you to start the journey? Because you're aware of this amazing destination. And we can very quickly begin to grumble and complain about the journey. The nation of Israel grumbled and complained all the time because they forgot. They forgot what God had saved them out of and they forgot what God was saving them into. Can we be a people who ask the Lord to remind us regularly of how great and glorious his salvation is? Just to remind us what he saved us out of and what he's saving us into that we would be so excited that we would invite others onto the journey. And that as we take the journey, we would see our brothers and sisters and do everything in our power to see them finish the race well also. I'm saying this because if we simply let the last couple of weeks go by without giving careful attention to these things, We'll have a whole bunch of forms that were filled in by people saying, yes, I got saved. And we'll look around and our churches will not have changed. Because it's not about making converts, it's about making disciples. So let's celebrate what God's done. Let's celebrate every salvation. But let's be aware of every person and do everything we can to bring them on the journey. And I want to say to every person here, I'm glad you're on the journey with me. I'm glad I'm not doing this alone. And I owe a deep debt of gratitude for me, to many people here. Some of you that have prophesied over me, prayed for me, befriended me, that's a big sacrifice. Encouraged me, served me. In many, many ways, I owe many of you a debt of gratitude. And some of you need to realize that the small things you can do that you think are insignificant that can change people's eternities. Where are we going? Where are we going? To the promised land. Our Sabbath rest. The fullness of what Christ has for us. And I want to finish this as a kind of prophetic declaration over us as a congregation that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1. I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm loving running this race with you. And I'm going to love enjoying the fruits of it with you in eternity.